0: Beloved congregation of the Lord, turn with me again in Matthew 13 and verse 58. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Well, as we have taken care to work through each part of the parable of the wedding banquet, the marriage supper we have seen many great doctrines unfolded here but a particular we have parked in that portion of the parable which speaks of the instructions of the king standing for God to his servants which would reflect the church to go into the highways and to bid them come unto the wedding. This is the call of Christ unto his church. And so if we desire to please the Lord, to be a faithful church, to be faithful people of God, then it will be our earnest desire as well that this be realized in our midst. Of course, not merely that we would carry it out for its own sake, although everything the Lord Jesus commands is worth doing, but indeed because that success which is joined unto this commission and command, that souls be saved from hell and damnation to the praise of God's glorious grace. This is what is bound up with this calling to evangelize. So we make no apology for giving some attention to this. And as I was reflecting on the best way to proceed in beginning to address lack of evangelism, which we all may address in our own lives, which we all may mourn and lament that we do not have that drive and perseverance in this calling that we would desire. As I Considered that and, and thought, what is the culprit? What is the enemy? What is the killer of evangelism within the church today? And this verse, which we read in Matthew 13, was particularly impressed upon me. With the Lord's help, I wish to open up something of this verse. We will see unbelief, the killer of evangelism. And First, I wish to open up the teaching of this text in particular, looking at the context and the teaching that we may derive from it in general, then applying it in the second place particularly to the, its relevance to evangelism. And third, we'll draw out some applications that we may bring home with ourselves this evening. Unbelief, the killer of Evangelism. Well, children, here we have the Lord Jesus in his teaching ministry. Maybe you listened to some of those parables that were being spoken of there, of the wheat and the tares of the pearl of great price and others as well. Very compelling, very arresting, aren't they? They, they draw you in and they, they make you say, what is that about? Well, just like we spoke somewhat about this morning, they're all designed to bring us to an understanding of how we are saved and what the character of true disciples of the Lord Jesus are. Really, that's what knits together all the parables of the kingdom, how we are saved and the character of those who are saved by Christ. And These parables, you see, they weren't just spoken, but they were also joined with incredible miracles. As Jesus went and taught the people, he also performed amazing miracles. He gave sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf, and he cast out demons. What incredible signs and wonders by the power of God, testifying that this man spoke the truth. That he indeed was no mere man, but the Son of God. And we read here in verse 53 of Matthew 13: And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. And when he came into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished. Now, his own country, you see, is the country of Nazareth. Maybe you remember when he called some of his early disciples. That was one of their questions. Can any good thing come from Nazareth? Of course, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but this is where he was raised. This is where he grew up. And he goes there to the local synagogue. We could say the local congregation. And he's giving a message from the front of that gathering. And all these people that Jesus would have grown up with, would have known him, From his youth, they are astonished. And listen to what they say in verse 54. Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works. Is not this the carpenter's son? Maybe, children, you remember that Jesus' adopted father, Joseph, he was a carpenter. He worked with his hands to make things with wood. They go on. Is not... This mother it's not his mother called Mary and his brother and James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters are they not all with us and whence then hath this man all these things and then it says in verse 57 and they were offended in him so that word offended means they stumbled they stumbled they were aghast. They were shocked. And ultimately, they were not attracted or affected by his teaching in the way they should have been. Instead, they said that given the fact that we know where he comes from, we know his family so very well, we know his brothers and sisters and his mother and so forth, they concluded that there must be nothing in it. How could this man who was not instructed in the ways of the scribes and Pharisees, didn't go to the right schools or the right seminaries, we could say, how is it that he could truly give us a message from heaven? Now, Jesus, you'll notice, he doesn't uh, give a very uh, aggressive defense. He doesn't really get upset at all. He, he speaks in a very mild way here in verse 57. But Jesus said unto them, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. If it is a mild rebuke, we could say it is also filled with sadness, isn't it? That Jesus would recognize he can go to all these other countries and be received as a prophet within the uh, kingdom of Israel, of course, but go to all, all these other regions, and here among his own people, he's not received. I suppose you could draw all sorts of lessons from that, whether there is something about being among the people that you grew up with, it makes it harder for them to receive your words if you speak with the authority of God. But be that as it may, it particularly applied to the Lord Jesus in this case. And then... The Holy Spirit directs Matthew in verse 58, to make this terrible and terrifying statement, and as he did not, sorry, and he did not, many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Unbelief, you see, is held forth as the reason. why only a few works were done. Indeed, you read Mark chapter six, verses five and six. And Mark explains the same event in a slightly different way. It says, he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went round about the village's teaching. So he did some mighty works. He laid some hands on a few people, but not many. I love how Dr. Gill explains that, he, he says, it wasn't that because he, he couldn't yet he and didn't have the power to do mighty works in their midst, but because it would have done no good. And it was not fitting that he should do mighty works where there was such unbelief. Dr. Gill says he would not. He would not. Because he judged them unworthy. And that it was not fit and convenient to perform any more since they were offended with what was done. And that their condemnation might not be increased. Basically, where Jesus had begun to preach and do miracles, what he had done had led to this result. They were offended. They were repelled and repulsed by it. What a fearful judgment will await them. While Jesus, rather than compounding their judgment by adding to the revelation of God, simply moves on, shakes the dust from his feet, we could say, as he instructed his disciples to do in another place. Listen to the Puritan Matthew Poole. He saw them, a people whose hearts, through the just judgment of God, were locked and shut up under unbelief. And therefore it was to no purpose to do more miracles before them, upon whom they would have no effect. Nor did this consist with what he knew of the counsels of God with reference to them. I also found John Calvin particularly helpful. Listen to what he says about what we can learn from this episode. John Calvin says, it was the impiety of Christ's countrymen that closed the door against the performance of a greater number of miracles among them. He had already given them some taste of his power, but they willingly stupefy themselves so as to have no relish for it. It goes on to say, when the Lord perceives that his power is not accepted by us, he at length withdraws it. And yet we complain that we are deprived of his aid when our unbelief rejects and drives far from us. It's a scary thing to imagine that the Lord would do a few things, give us a bit of a taste of his power, strength, and grace, and what little he does would be met with this result rather than faith, trust, and rejoicing offense, stumbling, and particularly unbelief. Unbelief, you see, is the mother of all sins. What was it that the devil used to bring our first parents to their terrible end? Was it not that he began by questioning their faith in the word of God? Yea, hath God really said, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was unbelief that gave birth to the sin that plunged All of Adam's posterity into death, we may also recognize a similar principle in our own lives. That any sin that takes root in us begins with this. We do not take Christ at his word. You see, we can speak about faith in different senses, can't we? We can speak about that initial trust in the Lord that engrafts us into Christ. And this Properly understood is not really regarded as an act of obedience according to the standard of the law. No, it's not an act of righteousness so much as an act of weakness, of reaching out and grasping Christ in faith. It is not the righteousness of our faith that saves us then. No, it is Christ and his righteousness that saves. Faith is only the instrument and the empty hand that receives we may also speak of that faith also having a place in our lives, the ongoing life of faith. Hebrews 10, verses 38, speaks, Now now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back my soul, says the Lord, has no pleasure in him. And immediately thereafter, you have, of course, that wonderful definition of faith that the apostle gives in Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Faith, it is that which governs and characterizes the Christian life because it brings to our understanding, brings to our minds, brings to our affections, the eternal and spiritual realities of God's will, word, and promises all that God has ever done and all that he ever will do and all he is doing today it is to be understood according to this basic principle of taking God at his at his word you read the rest of Hebrews 11 doesn't it give characterization after characterization example after example of faith there you have Noah And it says in Hebrews 11, verse seven, by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Think of Noah there, did not have a weather forecast to predict a flood. There'd never been a global flood. There never was again. But he had God's word. And so he appeared to be the most foolish man in the whole world, spending years and years building this colossal structure. Uh, Peter, in his epistle, speaks about him as a preacher of righteousness. He preached the coming judgment and surely preached and exhorted the people there to turn from their Sin. And yet it appears that only Noah's family heeded the instruction. And yet, where he had acted in faith, that itself is bound up with his saving faith. It's spoken of as one, both the faith that trusted in God, as well as the activity which flowed from it. Sometimes the Bible speaks of that. Likewise, in verse 8, right after, in Hebrews 11, verse 8, by faith, Abraham when he was called to go into a place which he should have to receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing whither he went, didn't know where it was going, where it would end up. He obeyed the Lord because his life was characterized by true faith. Faith, you see, brings to our awareness the things that are hidden from the eyes of sight, it allows us to see more clearly, more distant. And so it allows us to act in such a way as befits the true reality that is before us. On the great day of days when the Lord Jesus comes on the clouds, what will it be for those who have lived in unbelief? It will be the most horrifying day of all. For in that moment, what they fancied to be wisdom and intelligence and sophistication will be in a moment snuffed out and they will see themselves for what they are as the utter fools that would not take God at his word. And so it is that it's frequently spoken of in the gospels and in the historical accounts. Maybe you are aware, children, of that event in Matthew 17, in which Jesus descends from the mountain after the Lord made him shine with the brightness of the sun. And as he goes down there, he's approached by a man kneeling, and he says in Matthew 17, verse 15, "'Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and sore vexed, for oftentimes he falleth into the fire.'" And oft into the water, and I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him to me. And there we read, children, this little boy who is possessed by the demon, being thrown into the water and the fire. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. You see, those disciples couldn't cast out the demon. They probably said something like, in the name of Jesus, come out. But nothing happened. They probably saw it all sorts of ways, but nothing worked. And then we read in verse 19, then came Jesus, sorry, then came the disciples to Jesus Apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place. And it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Great and strong promises here. Say to this mountain, remove and it shall be removed. Well, of course, it does not often suit the will of God. that mountains should be picked up and moved. But the principle is simply this. Whatsoever is consistent with the will of God, with the glory of God and with the good of his people where we pray for it and ask for it. Indeed, he well, grant him. And so what is he attribute this terrible tragedy of this little boy who is plagued and tormented by this demon and surely would have perished forever had not the Lord Jesus come across? He says this: it was because of your unbelief. You had not even faith the size of a mustard seed. So here we have him. In general, this is what we may learn from this passage and others like him. That unbelief is such a fearful offense unto the Lord Jesus Christ that he withholds blessing and displays of his power unto his people and servants where it is present. Now we may draw a distinction and say there's no one who does not have unbelief in some measure we cry out with that father as Mark records that same event Lord I believe help help my unbelief but how much different is that the faith that cries out for more faith the grace to plead for more grace how different is that than the spirit which is often characterizing the visible church and we fear also in our own day where we have not because we ask not. And we ask not because ultimately at the bitter root of the matter, there is unbelief as to whether the word of God is true or not, as to whether Christ is faithful to his promises to his church or not. A church without power is a very pitiful thing. A very tragic thing. What brings more scorn and reproach. Unto the name of Christ. Than a church that most evidently. Does not have the power of Christ. Working in their midst. So it is that we see. The history of the church. Is characterized by times of coldness. Declension. Where. Where. The love of many waxes cold. It's also characterized by revivals. Great outpourings of the spirit. Where people begin to seek the Lord's face. And there are mighty works done. Indeed many converted. By the power of the gospel. People powerfully and soundly converted. Unto the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. People yearning for more preaching. Yearning. And so it is that this has not been unknown, even in the history of the church here in North America. There's these great revivals that we read of, which we have not time to speak of particularly. But whether in a great revival or in a small working, a small working of the Lord, where there is power in the midst of the church and people of God, should we not expect that people would take notice of The Lord, indeed, would be adding to the church day by day as sinners are snatched from the clutches of the devil, snatched from ensnaring sins and vices, where they repent of their sins and give themselves unto the Lord. There is the Lord in the midst of them. There is the Lord working. So it is if we have not this blessing in our own day, we cannot blame Christ for he is the same yesterday, today and forever. We cannot blame the gospel for it is as relevant and true as it ever has been. We cannot blame God for his arm is not shortened that it cannot save. No, we have this to blame and we have this to mourn the terrible unbelief that is characterizing the people of God. So also we begin merely with us personally and say, is it me, Lord? Is there unbelief in me? Is this why the evangelism, which is so prized in your word, does not have the same place and priority in my life? Is this why it is a distraction from other things? Is this why, indeed, it does not burden me, the souls around me? Is this ultimately the culprit, the mother of this great offense? There is unbelief in me, unbelief concerning the Lord Jesus and his word. Well, thus we've already begun to consider the second consideration, the relevance, the relevance of this teaching to evangelism. And I'm sure you'll agree there's many things that are relevant. But let me read again what we have been considering in Matthew 22, verse 8. Then saith he, the king, to his servants, The wedding is ready, but they which were bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both good and bad. And the wedding was furnished with guests. If you track with the parable, you know that immediately after the city of rebels killing many of the servants of God... The Lord, the king, he turns around and instructs his servants to go further, go further into the highways. The people at the very center of my kingdom, they would not hear me. They were not unworthy. They killed my servants. So go out to the periphery, go out unto the marginal. And you might imagine that if indeed The invitation would not be heard by those closest to the king. What should we expect from those who are at a distance? Those who are among them in the highways. And yet there is obedience. There is obedience. And this obedience can only proceed from true faith. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power Is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe whatsoever things I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. This ragtag group of fishermen, he says, go to all the world, teach, disciple, baptize. This is What is before them, and yet this is at the root of it. Christ is with them. I will always be with you. Christ has the power and authority. All power in heaven and earth is given unto me. Do you not see that bound up with this is faith? If we would ask the question, why is it that I am not evangelizing? Or that you are not evangelizing? Or the church in general, may we even say the Reformed Church? of whatever denomination in our own day is not evangelizing, may we not put this ultimately as the culprit. There is unbelief there. Yes, surely people raised within the church, we should expect them to be saved, surely. Raised within the covenant, raised with the promises of their baptism, raised under the preaching of the word. Well, praise God that the Lord saves people in the visible church. But is that the church of the book of Acts? Was it not that people were daily added from the outside to their numbers? Is it not the case that sometimes the reason why we have difficulty proving the teaching of infant baptism is because of how many adult baptisms there are to choose from? Well, would it not be a wonderful thing if we were the sort of church that was regularly doing adult baptisms? Because we, like the book of Acts, we're having people daily added unto our numbers. And yet you can talk to even faithful Reformed and Presbyterian pastors throughout our land, and maybe they will say, I've done one, maybe two adult baptisms in my life. Dear brothers and sisters, it ought not to be. It ought not to be so. Why would it be? that the Reformed churches would not have adult baptisms? Why is it that there would not be those who were once prostitutes, once drug addicts, once given over to the ways of the world, once were atheists, once were Muslims, whatever it may be, why is it that they would not be added to the church daily? Is it because the gospel has changed? Is it Christ has changed? No, we've already said it's not. It is because of unbelief. We do not believe that the gospel saves. Ultimately, this is the root of him. Where I think of this whole matter, I think of the Lord Jesus praying for his church. John 17, verse 9, he says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them, which thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine. And I am glorified in them, dear brothers and sisters. We understand he's praying for the lost, the elect among the lost. Today, worshiping false gods in synagogues and in mosques. Today, given over unto the perversion of homosexuality or adultery or pornography. And yet the Lord Jesus prays for them because among them are his people, those given unto him before the foundation of the world. He says in verse 11 of that chapter, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them through thine own name, those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one. As we are. Can you imagine if uh, there was a family where one of their children just happened to go missing? There is the family, and one of the children has, had wandered off. They'd gone off into the city. Can you imagine the family going on about their business, carrying on as though nothing had happened? Well, you know, there's one children missing, but, you know, it all averages out in the end of the day. We've got the carry out the regular business of the day well surely not the priority is saving that one which was lost and so it is as long as the Christian church is an undivided family as long as the true people of God are scattered about this world as long as they are not all gathered into one church and our business is collecting them, finding them, sharing the gospel with them, that those appointed unto eternal life will believe. He says, John 17:20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word. That is the prayer for the church not merely for those who at that point were saved, not merely for those today who are saved, but all who will believe through our word. All of them are the burden of the Lord Jesus Christ. He prays for them. And shall not we, shall not we have a heart that is consistent with the burden of Christ? You know, it's a shocking thing to me, a shocking thing where it would sometimes be argued that the doctrines of grace are some kind of barrier to evangelism. What do I mean by the doctrines of grace? That all and only the elect of God will be saved for those are those for whom God chose and those for whom Christ died and those who are indwelt by the spirit. That is sometimes argued as a grounds not to evangelize because obviously, if they are elect, they will be saved anyway. Well, that's foolishness. Notice how our canons of door, of door sweetly weds together that which must never be torn asunder. It says there in um, Article 6 that some receive the gift of faith from God and others do not receive it proceeds from God's eternal decree. For known unto God are all the works from the beginning of the world, who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, according to which decree he graciously softens the hearts of the elect, however obstinate, and inclines them to believe, which he leaves to the non- while he leaves the non-elect in his just judgment to their own wickedness, And obduracy. If that were not true, I can't imagine how I could ever evangelize again. I can't imagine how I would ever get behind a pulpit again. If it was up to me, up to my persuasion powers, up to my intellect, up to my arguments, then it would all be a waste of time. But you see, it's the power of God unto salvation, it's the sovereign grace of God through His gospel. That is what saves. That is why we can't give up. That is why it's not a waste. God has his people here. His people here in London. Maybe there are people you know, maybe in your own families, maybe your neighbors. And have you ever thought, why is it that I know this person? Why is it that me of all people should be brought into this person's life? Is it not that you would speak of Christ to them? What else shall we speak of them? You think that your word will be scorned? Well, indeed, it will be scorned until such time as their eyes are opened and they see the glories of Christ until such time as the Spirit works in them. But how can they believe except they hear? And it's through hearing that God is pleased to give faith. So I hope we've demonstrated this. If... We're going to ultimately take evangelism seriously. We need to understand this, that God commands evangelism and God promises fruit on evangelism. God promises he will be glorified in evangelism. And if we do not evangelize, this is the utter root of it. We are calling God a liar. We are disbelieving. So let us draw some applications from this, some applications Our unbelief stands. Condemned, listen to what Matthew 17, verse 17 says. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? It's an interesting discussion. Was he speaking to the Pharisees who were in the crowd? Was he speaking to the father of the demoniac child? Was he speaking to his disciples? I think particularly his disciples most likely in view, they were that faithless and perverse generation. Jesus was with them for but a short time and time. And again, they display the fruits of their unbelief. And the devil has a heyday where the church is powerless. And So we may take this as well. How long will the Lord Jesus suffer his church here in North America? How long will he suffer the Reformed churches to despise his word by neglecting this call to evangelize? Can we imagine that we can simply construct some kind of mechanism, some kind of secure system whereby we can have all the blessings of God's presence and yet neglect what is plainly spoken? Yes, we will not evangelize, but we can have seminaries to train more men to serve our churches and yes we won't evangelize but we can catechize and yes we won't evangelize but we will at least have the gospel for ourselves dear brothers and sisters can you imagine for a moment the lord would tolerate such things Do we not know that the Lord is a jealous God? Do we not understand that the Lord will not share his glory with another? If we expect we can construct our own little kingdom here on this continent and be preserved by continuing in disobedience unto the Lord, then we are fools. We are fools. Surely the Lord will remove our candlestick. He will remove the blessings of the gospel from the reformed churches if there is not humbleness on this point. We ought to recognize that where the Lord withholds his grace and power because of unbelief, not only is there not many extravagant mighty works done in the way of conversions, but also gradually deadness and rot takes its place false teaching rank apostasy persecution the likes of which we have never fathomed these things are indeed the case where you see the history of the church both old covenant and new covenant where there is unbelief we are testing and trying god testing his patience And it ought not to be. It ought not to be that we should have such an attitude that we see how much we can get away with and still have the Lord in our midst. It's not right. And it will surely end in disaster. Hebrews 10, verse 38. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Just a few verses later is that verse in which he says, without faith it is impossible to please God. If we don't start believing in the Great Commission, believing in the power of the gospel, then indeed God will have no pleasure in us and we may expect his judgment if, if not utter destruction. We don't, do we want Christianity to flourish on this continent? Do we want Canada to be one for Christ? Do we want a legacy for our children and children's children? That we are the people of God. And this is the key to it. Humble faith in what God has spoken on this point. Here's another application. Do not tolerate the voice of unbelief, not for a moment. Wherever it comes, do not give it place. Remember, last week we considered that uh, word from the Lord Jesus Christ after Peter's confession. Blessed art thou, Simon bar for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And he says, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and so forth. Great commendation was given unto Peter at that point, even the promise of the keys of the kingdom of heaven together with all the other apostles and with them, all ministers of the gospel. But right after that, we forget what happened next. In Matthew 16, verse 21... From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. So Jesus is speaking about his crucifixion. Peter is saying, be it far from thee, Lord. It It can never be. And then verse 23, and he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Jesus spoke in love unto Peter, but he spoke very clearly. He said, you are speaking for Satan, Peter. That word that you just spoke, it does not come from one of whom I can say, blessed are you. It comes from the very pit of hell. Where you would despise the way of the cross, the way of suffering, the way of scorn. You may think that that is something noble, but No. No, you savor of the things of man, not the things that be of God. And that is the original vice of the devil. And so it is that we ought not to tolerate unbelief. Or someone would speak a word against the necessity of evangelism, the necessity of the cross unto salvation, and also the efficacy, the power of the gospel As the power of God unto salvation, to everyone that believes, of our responsibility to bring it unto the lost, to the highways and byways, of the primacy of preserving faithful preaching in cities like London that have not many faithful witnesses. These things, these things come from a place of unbelief and they come from the devil himself. Hebrews 3, verse 12, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Isn't that a great verse? It describes for us that sin is deceitful and any one of us can be deceived. We can be deceived into a way of thinking which is not of God and which is not of faith. And one way or another where it rears its head, it deserves to be shown for what it is as displeasing to God, as dishonorable unto the Lord. You think of William Carey, and the saying goes that as he is pledging to go to India to share the gospel with the heathen there abroad, that one of the ministers of that day told him to sit down, young man, for when God is pleased to convert the heathen, he will do so without your help. And of course, we praise God that William Carey gave no place unto the devil, speaking through that man. For he believed what God said was true. That indeed Christ wanted the the nations to be discipled. And he set about that work. We say this in the third place. Wage war. Wage war on remaining unbelief in you. Dear brother, dear sister, unbelief has no place in you. We have not been called unto unbelief, but unto faith. Jesus says in John 17, verse 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Do you want to wage war in your unbelief? Meditate on the great truths of the scripture. Take an hour and just meditate on the reality of hell. Think about the millions and millions of souls that are there in hell right now, never to depart. Think of your own sins, infinitely worthy of the fires of hell. Think of the billions and billions of souls around this world who are plunging headlong into the fires of hell. Think of the grace of Christ. Think what he suffered. Think what he died, what he endured. Think what he cried. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Think how he endured hell in our place and how he came to bring many sons into glory. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I am no better. You are no better. We are the chief of sinners. And yet here are those who lie in the midst of death. Think of Christ Jesus there praying, praying for his church, praying for the lost. Think of the Holy Spirit, which is powerful to bring us from death unto life. Think of the sower who bears that precious seed, cast it on many soils. And in God's way, he brings it exactly to that soil which is prepared for the time appointed where it brings forth much fruit. Think upon this word, brothers and sisters. You will be sanctified in it. You will find that the unbelief which once clung to you is exposed for the folly, foolishness, and wickedness that it is. That it is treason against heaven. That it has no place in our hearts. Steadfast, earnest prayer is how we wage war against unbelief. Jesus spoke to those disciples when they could not cast out that demon from that young boy. He said, "How be it this kind? This kind of demon goeth out not by prayer, but goeth out not but by prayer and fasting. Are you praying? Are you fasting? Are you storming the gates of heaven? Do you have on your list souls that you know are going to hell?" Do you bring them before the mercy seat of Christ and say more, Lord, the lamb who was slain is worthy of more glory for you have died for sinners such as these. Save this one. Save that one. May there be earnestness in our prayers. May we show we mean business by fasting and setting aside time where nothing would distract, that no earthly pleasure would take its place, but that we give ourselves tirelessly to pray for the lost. Matthew 7, verse 7, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Finally, take the step of faith take that step of faith you think of peter there he is there in the boat and he's been fishing all night and what does jesus say cast your net on the other side peter seemed to say there's no point in that lord but at your word i will do it he casts his net on the other side and there's the the bumper crop of fishes the likes of which he had never known that first step Taking that plunge into the unknown, walking by faith and not by sight, entering into the great commission to share the gospel with the lost. It entails this Christian. the journey of a million miles begins with a single step, and the first step of obedience is believing that the Lord will will bless your obedience. John 12 in verse sorry, John 14 and verse 12. Verily, verily, says Jesus, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do. And the Father shall be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Do not think that the Lord will deny himself, Do not imagine that your efforts will be in vain. Do not imagine he will not establish the work of your hands. The Lord would fetch glory unto himself. He would use us to do it. And I would leave you with this. He prays for you. He prays for you. Even where we fail, even where we fall, even where we languish for years in disobedience unto his great commission. He also prays when Peter spoke boldly that he would never deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke to him in this way in Luke 22, verse 32. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted or or returned, strengthen thy brethren. He prays for his servants, that they may not grow weary in well-doing, that they may persevere unto the end. Dear Christian, take that step in faith. The Lord Jesus is in it, and he will not disappoint you. Amen.